Hi, I'm Mike McGrath, host of You Bet Your Garden, seen and heard here on Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. And you may think it's the downtime for gardeners right now, but you couldn't be more wrong. This is the time to get all your seeds and plants in order and organize for next season. So give us a call at 833-727-9588 and don't miss the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media right here in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. Coming up, we have a really interesting question for you today, as opposed to the ones we normally do. Um, and that is many of you have taken the pit of an avocado and put it in water uh, with some toothpicks and started to grow a new plant. The question is, where do you go once you've got some roots coming out of that puppy? And then what do you do make it turn into a possibly large and healthy plant? We'll tell you everything when we get to the question of the week. And it'll be coming up after a nice interview that I conducted with our old friend, Jake Chalfin, from Laurel Valley Soils about a new program that really does test bulk compost so that you can use it with ultimate confidence. 833-727-9588. 833-727-9588. Sharon, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. Well, good morning, and thank you for making it, Sharon. Where are you? I'm in Piscataway, New Jersey. Uh-oh. Is this the dreaded wife of cheerful Charlie Sarah? It sure is. Our sound engineer. I was going to use an adjective there, but it's around the holidays, so I should be nice, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Cut him, cut him with some slack this time of year. Uh, slack or flack? I wasn't sure what... <laughs> All right, well, we've talked to you before, Sharon, and you're always a delight. So um, what can we do you for? Uh, what's happening in Piscataway? The... Well, um, in the summer, I bought these beautiful palms. I wanted to create a little oasis in the backyard without putting them in the ground. What, you, not what, what? Do you think this is wildwood? I know. I know. Well, you know, I, I tend to dream that I want to, like, just come into the backyard and see some palms and all that, um, knowing full well that they're going to die, and I don't have the heart to just let them die. I was tossing, tossing back and forth. Do I just let them die? Do I bring them? So I've been carting them back and forth in the garage when it looks like it's going to be really cold and then back out. And so I just wanted to know, like, what... What should what I do? You were what thinking? I do? <laughs> like, I don't want them to die. I feel bad. But so they're in the house and they're just like, 
we, we were challenged on our space, and I just don't know what kind of – should I repot them? Should I cut them down? I just don't know what to do as far as winterizing these palms. Right, because, because the plants are already under stress. So let's mm -hmm. stress them some more and then attack them with sharp objects. That'll make them feel better. <laughs> okay. Uh, had you called before winter set in, I would have suggested plastic palms from Wildwood. You know, people, yeah. people get a couple drinks in them out by the pool, honey. They can't tell the difference. Yeah, you're right. I should have done that. Now, where did you get palm trees? Did you drive down to Florida and invade somebody's front yard? I got them, yeah, I got them, yeah, no, no. I got them at this nursery on Route 9 South. They call it a majestic palm. So I thought, what the heck, you know, maybe I, maybe, I don't know what I was thinking. I just got caught up in it. That happens in the summertime when I pass the, you know, the nursery. <laughs> uh-huh, that's it. That's why they have the candy next to the checkout at the uh, yeah, exactly. supermarket. that's me, that's me. All right, so, so now a lot of people don't know this. But there are hardy tropical plants. Um, for instance, one of the most famous and one of the favorite plants of our readers back when I was editor of Organic Gardening was the hardy banana. Now, bananas are majestic plants for their gigantic leaves. And if you live in a place like Southern California or Southern Florida, they will actually flower and fruit for you. And the flower of a banana tree is the most spectacular flower you'll ever see. But there have been various cultivars bred that can survive a northern winter. Um, but they're not going to produce bananas. It's just the bragging rights that you've got a banana in your front yard. Now, the idea that a nursery in Joyzee was selling these plants, did they have any information about them being hardy or semi-hardy or about overwintering? Um, they, no, not really. I, I asked a guy that was uh, another fellow shopper that was buying a few, and I, and I asked him, you know, like, because obviously he lives in the same area. If he's buying them, and how does he... And he just said that he wraps them in burlap and keeps them in the garage. And then I, I said, all right, that seemed like a good... Uh, whatever, enough for me to, to sell... You know, sold. Let me just get right. three of them, not just one to try it out. But I got to go ahead and get three. You know, and, so. um, and they're still alive. Have they been outside during any cold stretches? Yeah, they did. Um, um, not, like about a, a few weeks ago. I mean, I was doing really good bringing them back and forth. And then when right. the weather got really nice, I left them out in the driveway area. And then one day I just forgot, and right. I went out, and the leaves just some of them just bent, and it just like broke my heart. So yeah. I brought them in, I cut those off, and then just, you know, replenish them with some soil and just have them in the house now. But okay. I didn't know if there was anything else. Or yeah, hold on one second, because, you know, Charlie is our sound engineer, and so he's listening to his wife here talking with me. Charlie, when you get home, hide all of the sharp objects, not just pruners, Scissors, you probably know not to argue with your wife in the kitchen, but get rid of any sharp knives as well, okay? These plants have already had a hard enough time. Um, are they inside now? Yes. Okay. What, what kind of situation are they in? Uh, they don't look good. No, well, I didn't ask that. They, I meant... Oh, oh. Uh, they're, they're in... Um, you know, they're just they're in a nice lighted spot. Okay. They're not near any vents because I don't I know the vents are bad. Good, good, good. Heat on them. 
mm-hmm. I've just been leaving them alone. I just I check to see, um, you know, finger deep to see how dry the soil is. And if it's dry, I, I re Okay, no. no. No, but that's a good Uh-oh. thing to bring up at this time of year. Um, in the winter, even tropical plants will go dormant if they're not getting the right type of sunlight. So dormant plants don't use a lot of water. What you want to get is just a basic wooden chopstick and push that down into the soil until you hit the bottom of the pot. Yeah. And if it's wet down there, they don't need water. Their roots, wow. their roots need to dry out. Well, you think about palm trees in the tropical climates they're in, how often does it rain? How many inches of rain do they get a year? Maybe five, seven inches? So one of the reasons that their leaves are so big and fleshy um, is they hold a lot of water. So what I would do is keep them in good light, as you say, away from, um, away from any kind of heating vent. Now, what's the humidity like in your house? If you're mad at your husband, can you rub your feet on the floor and then touch him and shock him? No, no. Okay. We're about we're about 40% in here. Okay. What I would the thermometer thermostat says. Yeah, uh, as long as that one night didn't kill them and really when plants like this get killed by frost, they tend to turn black. You know. Oh, okay. In between is like, well, you're not happy cuz Charlie unlocked the door and you had to spend the night in your car, but <laughs> nobody's dead yet, okay? No. So um, the plants are getting decent light from the outside and everything. Turn them every week. Turn them a quarter turn. Check their water. Water them when they're dry. And otherwise, just leave them alone. Do not feed them. Do not attack them with any more sharp objects. And and then wait until all chance of frost is over. I'm a coward. I have birds of paradise, which are... Um, just as tender as yours, perhaps more so. And I never put them out before June 1st because they're they're big and you don't want to lug them in and out. There's no reason for you to take them outside. The type of sunlight you're getting now um, really does not induce photosynthesis. The sun's in the wrong position. So all you want to do is keep them alive over the winter, put them out uh, between, you know, May 20th and June 1st, And then water them, but do not prune them. Do not take off any leaves unless they totally turn brown. Uh, Okay. Okay? And don't feed them till they go outside. And then a very gentle feeding. Okay. And then when when we get to, like, September and October, bring them in sooner than you think you have to, and there's quite a possibility these things will live for years. Again, if Charlie hides the sharp objects before you get home. (laughs) Yeah, that's we got a brand new set of knives. Oh, man, we're in trouble here. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, always a pleasure, Sharon. Good luck to you. Thank you. And hope you had happy holidays. Thank you. You too. And thank you again for taking my call. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break. And once again, remind everybody out there to keep an eye out for those big rosemary plants that have been pruned into the shape of miniature Christmas trees. They make great holiday decorations, perfect gifts, and they provide an amazing amount of fresh rosemary for the buck. But don't you go galloping towards your local garden center just yet, because we'll be right back with avocado advice and more of your avocado-colored phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. 
support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Oso Mary, Bethlehem, PA. Coming up, we are going to help you turn that gigantic avocado pit that tempts so many people. I got something this big, I gotta be able to grow something out of it. We'll tell you how to do that and perhaps even how to keep it alive into a full-size tree that you are sure to enjoy. But now it's time for us to venture into the science of soils with what I think is some very important information about compost and salinity. Sanity, that's what I'm lacking, but salinity, which is theoretically too much salt, although we may find out different. And to help us find out different, we welcome back special guest Jake Chalfin from Laurel Valley Soils. Jake has been on the air with us before. He sends us really great articles and information. And uh, Lehigh Valley Soils is a, a supplier of bulk compost and so much more. They even make of the special material that's used to install green roofs. So um, they're ahead of the game in terms of what they can supply. And on December 9th, which I realize is in the rearview mirror right now, they will present, or they have presented, a webinar on essentially salinity in compost, which we were all brought up to think, well, that's wrong. You don't want a lot of salt in your compost. But apparently, uh, that attitude is changing rapidly. So, Jake, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. Well, Mike, thank you so much for having us back on your show. It's always fun chatting with you. Laurel Valley Soils has uh, been in partnership with the United States Compost Council uh, as, as a member composter for many, many years. You know, we try to stay abreast of all the latest science in soil and compost production. For many, many years, there's been sort of a, a dichotomy between uh, what the manufacturers of compost know to be true with performance issues and what has been specified um, in the industry uh, as it relates to uh, compost usage. We worked with the United States Compost Council to come up with sort of a clearinghouse of all the science that had been done over the last 50 years relating to the specific subject of uh, salinity, uh, also known as soluble salt content, or electrical conductivity uh, in compost. We basically boiled down all the science and research that had been done and tried to distill out a clear interpretation. Uh, on the ninth, report from that is going to be made available uh, for people to participate in a webinar. There are three experts uh, from the world of compost science who are going to present this information. Yes, uh, I believe two of the presenters uh, work in one of the accredited labs that does the testing for the United States Compost Council's STA program, which stands for Seal of Testing Assurance Program. And I believe the uh, third presenter is going to be the person uh, who was involved in collecting uh, and organizing all the research uh, that went into this uh, uh, program. Now, before you start explaining this, 
I'll just lay out to our viewers, our listeners, that when you send a sample of soil, or in very hip soil labs, a sample of compost, you'll get back all this scientific data. The easiest which to understand, uh, nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, of course the pH, is it acidic, is it alkaline, is it neutral, and uh, percentage of organic matter, which to me might be the most important thing to look at. You know, the higher the organic matter, uh, the more life is in that soil or compost. But I will be absolutely cards down frank with you. When I got down to electrical conductivity and all this stuff, I'm going, you know, well, it's probably like the SATs. If you don't know the answer, just move on. Don't, don't give a wrong answer. Uh, but yes, as you strongly imply, um, we were all taught, meaning backyard fence speaking, that you don't want soil with any kind of a saline content. You know, don't, uh, you can steal the thunder of the other people. So tell us why there is a sea change in that attitude. The, the industry has been evolving, and I think a lot of it has to do with the advent of uh, manufactured soils for urban infrastructure. Soils being used for rain gardens, uh, and I should say compost amended soils, soils made for green roofs. And so these highly uh, engineered structural type soils require a lot of testing and they have to be produced just right. Otherwise, you know, you could have a catastrophic failure in a very expensive landscape in a very difficult place to go and fix it, uh, say on the top of a roof. And, and so people really wanted to understand quality and the elements of the compost going into these specialty soils so they could have much better um, confidence that the, so the soils would perform. But to, to back up to the beginning, the most universal compost, in my opinion, uh, a compost that can be found all over the entire continental United States, or really all over the world, is a what we would call like a yard waste compost or a leaf compost. Um, no matter where you go in the world, you're going to always have people that need to get rid of recycle compost yard debris. Inherently, uh, that type of compost uh, has very low soluble salt content. And if you think about it, it makes sense because uh, leaves uh, don't have a lot of nutritional value. Um, they have some, but um, the real benefit is just the organic matter that they bring. That became the benchmark. And so, you know, as other materials started being commercially produced for compost, say, um, whether it's biosolids or dairy manure compost or mushroom compost, you name it, they were being compared to the benchmark, which was leaf compost. Now, all these other composts, these what I might call agricultural-based feedstock composts, had much higher nutrient values. And nutrients, uh, when tested in a lab, are kind of put under the title of soluble salt. And so the soluble salt content of these other types of compost were coming back much higher than leaf compost, and that gave people a lot of concern. If you had a leaf compost with a high soluble salt content, you should be concerned because you'd have to ask yourself the question, why is there high soluble salt or electrical conductivity in my leaf waste compost? There isn't any ingredients that you know, would drive it. There's no manure that would be driving that. So then you would think, oh, geez, is, that, is it contaminated on some level? Um, that's sort of where the, the concern went. But the truth is, if you understand your feedstocks and the type of compost you're working with, 
you can draw a very clear picture as to where the nutrients are coming from and whether they're be considered beneficial nutrients uh, or not, beneficial soluble salts or not. The truth is soluble salts are actually grouping of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus and other micro and macro nutrients, um, which is all important for plant health and plant growth. Going back to the soluble salt concept, uh, when I was the editor of Organic Gardening, um, we were taught that the salts in animal manures or in uh, mushroom soil were there, uh, mushroom soil highly composed, as you know, of uh, horse manure, um, were there because both uh, horses, cattle, cows, um, are always being offered salt licks. And that gave them uh, a large sodium content in themselves. Theoretically, I guess, because they were, they wanted the animals to drink more water and put on more weight. Cows and uh, all livestock need nutrients and minerals in their diet just, just the same way as, as people do. And, you know, I think a lot of times when you look at the box, you know, your box of cereal, you'll see where uh, it's made from not only, say, wheat or whatever grains, but you'll see where they've added in certain minerals for, you know, good bone density and bone health. So, um, you know, for human consumption, uh, the mineral content soil and the salt content built into the food itself. And for, for uh, livestock that are just eating hay or raw grains or silage, uh, you know, they have to add these mineral blocks or salt licks just to uh, round off their, their, their healthy diet. But it, it certainly gets completely metabolized and, and is not uh, passed through in the manure whatsoever. Uh, what you do get in the manure is wonderful uh, source of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. So, you know, if you think about it, farmers for years have been spreading raw manure out on their fields uh, without any harm to the plant. Now, there might be some stormwater runoff issues and some you know, nutrient uh, pollution issues, you know, if those aren't applied at the right times of year or at the right application rate. But as far as those nutrients coming from manure and how they affect plant health, uh, you know, clearly it works quite well. And then if you take it a step further and you were to compost that raw manure, th therefore stabilizing it, you know, it, it becomes uh, even more uh, appealing to plants because at that point, it's basically the nutrients have been converted into more of a slow release form. And so even a manure, for example, uh, based compost or a mushroom-based compost that has a high uh, soluble salt content, even if it has a higher number, you got to remember that that is a slow release material. And so it's not all available at the plant at once. So the plant is not going to have a shock to its system. It's not going to be overloaded. And in, in fact, you know, the plant will send a signal through the root fibers and the hyphae in the soil uh, to the microorganisms in the soil. The plant will say uh, to the soil, hey, I'm hungry. And then the soil will metabolize the organic matter from the compost you applied and make available to the plant just exactly what the plant needs. It's an incredible symbiotic relationship. And uh, there's been studies done that one application of compost can provide beneficial nutrient sustenance to the plants for up to four years. Uh, and so if you think about it, if it's being metered out that slowly, even a higher number uh, isn't going to shock the system of a plant. And you and I both know that any large-scale composting operation should be tested, right? The material should be tested several times a year. 
So the first thing we're learning is if it is supposed to be yard waste compost, there should not be a lot of soluble salts. But if it's compost from mixed sources, which classically included animal manures, it can have more levels of this soluble salt material. So what is a good, safe, all-around number for a compost that would have been made with both brown materials and, say, horse manure or um, mushroom soil? Yeah, so that's a great question, and that's really the heart of the matter. So I'm not here to say that all composts with a high electrical conductivity are safe to use. What I am saying is that we've discovered that many composts with higher soluble salts are safe to use, and we know that based on uh, not only the uh, ingredients and the transparency uh, of those ingredients that the composter will will provide, the, the easy thing, the cheat sheet, if you will, is uh, the test report. It's the composters participating in the United States Compost Council's Field of Testing Assurance Program. They can provide you a very simple uh, test report that basically breaks it all down for you. There's a key element in the uh, test that really tells you what soluble salt content for that compost is. In reality, every compost has its own salt signature. Um, what I mean by that is we talked about leaf compost has a low salt signature, uh, dairy manure compost and, and mushroom manure compost has a higher salt signature. So you really have to take it on an individual basis. So if, if you were to request a test report, um, near the bottom of that sheet is, is a test called maturity indicator bioassay. That's really easy, right? And that's one of the big questions that people ask. How can I tell if my compost is finished. And another word for that, of course, would be maturity, something I'm completely lacking. Yep. Don't agree so quick. That, and something that I'm looking for in my compost. Most of my compost has always proven to be more mature than I am. Um, but is the maturity rating of compost um, outside of all this sodium ion stuff. Is that just a good guide that this material is ready to rock and roll? It's one of the many um, helpful boxes that need to be checked, um, and it's a big box. What, what the test report here uh, shows is not only a maturity indicator, but what they do is they take the compost in the lab and mix it with uh, perlite, which is basically a, a neutral um, filler, and then they'll plant a seedling in it. And then they'll monitor that seedling and they'll, they'll um, kind of rate its percent of emergence, so basically how it germinates. And then they'll rate its uh, seedling vigor. Mm -hmm. Once it's germinated, how robustly is it growing? Is it, is it the right color? Is it bright green? Is it straight, growing straight up? Or is it sort of yellow and weak and bendy looking? And, and they'll rate that. And so... If you have a compost with a high soluble salt and you've got really low maturity and low seedling uh, emergence or seedling vigor, then your conclusion can be, okay, there's probably a detrimental soluble salts in that. But if you have a compost with a high soluble salt content, say of 10, um, then uh, you look at your maturity uh, number and your seedling emergence and seedling vigor, and if those are all 90% or higher, 
and, and your, your growth is great and your seedling is, is healthy, then you can draw the conclusion that these soluble salts are the beneficial nutrients that we want and your plants need, not, not the negative ones. So there's, there's a difference between uh, calcium chloride, you know, your road salt, and, and the, uh, the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, which is really the food for life for the plants. So I guess I'm either correct or close to correct in my speculation that the sodium ion is actually carrying these nutrients and making them slowly available, which is uh, both a positive thing. Um, I'm guessing if somehow you got what would have otherwise have been high quality compost utilizing manures and you didn't have enough sodium there, even if the nutrients were there, they might not become bioavailable as quickly or as well? It's very important that compost is mature, fully finished composting and stabilized. An immature compost uh, can, can cause problems and it might just be you know, a month early from being finished. What I'd like to speak to the maturity as well. You know, every once in a while, I will see specifications that say, you know, leaf compost uh, must have been aged for a minimum of two years. And, and I like to take exception to that because um, the time frame to make a good, mature, stabilized compost is very dependent on the material, the type of compost, and the method that it's being composted. So depending on the material and, and what kind of method you're using, uh, you can make fully mature, stable, uh, safe compost in, say, nine months, or, or maybe it takes you 12 uh, to 14 months. Uh, quite, quite frankly, if it takes you two years to make compost, uh, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> it takes me 10 years. All right, Jake, thank you very much for being on You Bet Your Garden once again. Jake works at Laurel valley soils. Thanks again, Jake. You've been great. It's a lot of fun, Mike. Take care. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody who intends to buy one or more of those amazing rosemary Christmas trees I've been talking about, that these great little trees tend to be totally pot-bound when you purchase them. So be sure to move it on up into a bigger container as soon as you get it home especially if you're giving the plant as a gift. Otherwise, they'll think you're awful because it'll be brown in five days. But don't go perusing your empty pots to find the right size just yet because we'll be right back with important avocado advice and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV at Lehigh Valley Public Media in the Christmas City of Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, how you can grow your own avocado tree and how much chance you have of ever seeing avocados on that thing. You won't want to miss it, and you won't. It's coming up after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 
727727-927-9588. Joe, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it, Joe. How you doing? I'm good. And where is Joe good? Joe is good just south of you in Berks County. Oh, okay. What part of Berks County? Between Reading and Pottstown. Oh, okay. Very good. I know that area well. The Reading Phillies, I hate to say this with the Allentown AAA team nearby, mm -hmm. but the Reading Phillies are my favorite minor league team. That's a nice stadium. It is a beautiful stadium. It reminds me of Wrigley Field and all the old classic ballparks. All right, Joe, what can we do you for? I'm having a problem with my Granny Smith apple tree, Mike. Okay. What's up? It's about 20 years old and a real good provider. Mm-hmm. Started in 2018. If you recall, that was the wettest summer we've ever had. Until 2019. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I thought 18 was worse, but either way. Yeah. Late uh, in, in July, I noticed that the apples had pretty much fallen off, mm. and all of a sudden the leaves started coming down. Mm-hmm. By the middle of August, they were gone. It was bare. Yeah. That's I thought, fair. okay, we'll wait for the next spring. Well, spring came early. Toward the end of September, it came back fully relieved, relieved with all the blossoms. Hmm. It was beautiful in September. And then, of course, winter came and it went dormant again. So I thought, let's see what happens in the spring. The spring, it did leaf again. Right. The blossoms still came, but much less than normal. Okay. I'm saying maybe 50%. Okay. And then the whole process repeated itself in 19. The leaves all came off in August, and then it re-leafed again in September. Only now it was maybe down to 20%. Okay, so you never got apples. Never saw an apple. Okay. Now the question is, is there any chance that it will re return to its normal cycle. Well, yeah. Yeah, if the tree was healthy before that, I mean, oh, we had oh, yeah. we had twice as much rain as most plants can tolerate. And mm -hmm. apple trees are not the easiest thing to grow under any circumstances in the right, northeast. Right. Now, do you still prune the tree? I keep it very nicely trimmed, yes. Okay, that's good. That's good. So it has good airflow around yes, it? Yes, I, I did what they tell people to do, cut the middle out. Yes. So that there's lots of air that comes in through the top. Yes, that's very good. It's it's exceptional if the tree kind of looks like an open umbrella after you're exactly, done. Exactly. Exactly what it looks like. Because um, I think your problems would have been worse otherwise. <laughs> oh. I can't get much worse. I'm not getting any apples. No, don't say that, man. <laughs> that's a Kinahara times three. <laughs> All right, so uh, what's it growing out of? Is it, is it bare earth? Is it growing out of a lawn? What's going on? It's growing out of the lawn. I have some slope in my lawn, mm -hmm. but it drains nicely normally. Okay. Do you treat your lawn with anything? Uh, that portion of the lawn, no. That's the backyard, and I pretty much leave it uh, on its own. Okay. So there's no herbicides <clears throat> coming down towards no. the tree? No, not at all. Okay. Well, in a situation like this, I mean, there's really not, you know, if you wanted to, and is the tree mulched with anything? No, not really, just grass around it. 
Okay, just grass around it. Uh, do you feed the tree? Do you put... Mm, no, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm lazy. I've never fed it. Okay. Well, that you know, uh, no fertilizer is better than chemical fertilizer. But if you want to increase your chances, how about we hoe away the grass underneath mm -hmm. the tree... Mm -hmm. I can do that. Until you make a circle that's equal to the furthest branch. Ooh, that's a good bit of grass, but I can do it. Okay. And then if you want to go for the bonus round, um, see if you can, yeah, see, uh, normally I'd say core aeration, but you're going to bust up the roots. So I'm going to back mm -hmm. off of that and say then cover that bare ground with two inches of compost. That'll, that. that'll give the tree some natural nutrients, but this has happened to so many plants. I had my forsythia bloom beautifully in the spring, and then it bloomed again in the fall. I mean, completely <laughs> bloomed, and I thought that that was gonna ruin the springtime show, but I got a very nice show in the spring. So I think this is just water stress, and this is why, you know, we have that expression for the farming community, lose the farm. Because if this happens three or four years in a row, um, there's no money coming in. The bank forecloses on the farm. Absolutely. That's what happened in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. Yes, there were some farming practices that made it worse. But, you know, sometimes, you know, God thinks we're all Job. <laughs> and, you know, sends us a lot of tests that we would have been a, much happier to have done without. Absolutely. So it doesn't sound like you're doing anything really wrong that can be corrected. I don't know of any specific treatment, mm -hmm. although now that I think about it, my friend down in Texas, Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor, has what he calls the sick tree treatment. So if you wanted to try something really unique, um, go to his website. It's dirtdoctor.com. Dirtdoctor.com. Is and, that doctor spelled out or DR? Oh, no, spelled out. Howard's an old guy like me. Well, you're not as old as me. Yeah. Um, and then look up sick tree treatment. Gotcha. Okay, so maybe you want to add a little bit of his advice in with mine and just hope that we have a normal season for a change. That would be nice. All right, good luck, Joe. Hey, thanks for talking to me, Mike. My pleasure. Good luck this Take season. It. Take care. You too, sir. Bye-bye. As promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling an old avocado tree in Tennessee and a troubled youngster in New Jersey. Jeff in Kingston Springs, Tennessee writes, my spouse and I just inherited an avocado tree from a neighbor that was moving. He started the tree 15 years ago from the pit of an avocado he purchased in the store. It's currently about seven feet tall with two main trunks and lots of branches and leaves growing off the trunks. We want to prune it to minimize the height, but we don't know the best time to prune and how much. 
The tree will live in the house during the winter and go out by the pool in the summer. We have managed to keep two plumerias from Hawaii alive in this climate, but we don't have an experience with an avocado tree and we don't want to lose this plant. We do have grow lights and a sunroom ready to assist the avocado if needed. Well, I admire anybody that can keep a tropical tree like the avocado alive and healthy for 15 years. So my first bit of advice is the same as I give everyone in this pass around plant situation. If you're still in touch with that person, contact that previous owner and ask how they cared for it. Otherwise, go to the highly informative section of the California Avocado Commission website called How to Grow Your Own Avocado Tree. There is an astounding amount of useful information there about outdoor growing in really warm climates like Southern California and as a house plant. But for pruning details, I called my fruity buddy Lee Reich, author of many books, including Grow Fruit Naturally and The Pruning Book. Lee's answer, you can prune an avocado tree almost any time, but just after midwinter would be best. Prune it more for size control than you think it needs because it will actively grow back from wherever you prune it. Lee adds that it's not hard to keep an avocado tree alive in the winter, but give the tree a summer vacation outdoors in dappled sunlight. Acclimate the plant slowly to this brighter light, temperature changes, and the wind of the great outdoors. I'll add that your sunroom sounds like a perfect spot for the winter. I'll also add that you need to be sure that you never expose this tree to temperatures below freezing. So you should wait until June to take it outside and then bring it back inside before you think you have to. But then there's the obvious question. Is there any chance this tree could produce fruit? To which Lee responds, I thought you might ask that. It probably won't fruit. It's hard to give it good enough conditions in cold winter areas to get it to flower. And if it does flower, it needs cross-pollination from another variety. And here comes the weird part. And that pollinator has to shed its pollen at the correct time of day. With some varieties, that happens in the morning. With others, pollination occurs at night. So those are two vastly different types of pollinators. Lee adds, quote, I've tried all of this. I grafted appropriate varieties onto avocado seedlings that I personally raised. The plants produced oodles of flowers, but no fruit, even with hand pollination. Best to enjoy it as an attractive house plant. I say, again, ask the previous owner, did it ever flower for them? Did they ever see the beginnings of a fruit? The California Avocado Commission notes that most of the flowers will fall off without producing fruits, even under ideal situations. And they warn that once you start pruning, you have to continue on a regular basis. We move on to another recent avocado question from Riley in New Jersey. Riley writes, I started growing my avocado plant from a grocery store seed. It was doing well over the summer, but the leaves are now drooping, and I'm not sure what to do. The plant is always indoors. Do you have any ideas? 
Well, the first one is to read that growing your own avocado tree section of the aforementioned California Avocado Commission's website. It's beyond thorough. Unfortunately, even though it's beyond thorough, they don't include the symptom of droopy leaves in their what's wrong with your houseplant section. But I'll note two possibilities. One is watering. They note that a young tree needs to be watered frequently around three times a week. But as the tree gets older, you should drop back to once a week. Just like me, they advocate a good deep soaking followed by a period of no watering to allow the roots to dry out periodically. Root rot seems to be the biggest enemy of farm-grown trees in California, including trees that are growing in really dry areas. And because the vast majority of people overwater their plants rather than underwater them, I'm going to suggest that might be the cause here. The avocado pit also needs to be planted high in its soil, with half of that pit above ground, just like with an amaryllis bulb. The commission recommends that the soil be slightly on the acidic side with a pH between 6 and 6.5. A pH of 7, of course, is neutral. And I'll add that the, quote, soil in any container should be a combination of high-quality organic potting soil and compost, no garden soil. Well, that sure was some interesting information about growing your own avocados now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read that information over at your leisure or your leisure, including the link to that great How to Grow page from the California Avocado Commission. Because the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to abscond with my avocados if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you, you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, please, please include your location. And don't forget, you'll find all of this contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. That's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show, and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he received a major Matt Mason space station and a Great Garloo remote-controlled scary giant robot for Christmas in the same year. 
Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airwaves is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. The usual gang of idiots includes the esteemed Eric Werner, Zach the Tack Wisniewski, and a gaggle of others. Our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, is always late for a meeting, ah, but he's never late when his avocado-colored refrigerator calls out to him. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. I don't have either of those really cool Christmas toys anymore, but I'm saving up to buy a vintage Great Garlou robot from 1961, which now sells for around 2,000% of its original price tag of $17.98. And that means I will see you again next week and the week after that. And the week after that. And the week after that. And... What can you expect to hear next week? Hilarity, bad jokes, a small amount of useful information, and me. As long as these bolt cutters keep working. Boy, you know, this station must buy locks by the dozen. I'm Mike McGrath, and that's probably on the next You Bet Your Garden. Maybe. Plus your fabulous phone calls. Uh